0: Welcome, I'm your host, Greg McKeown. I'm the author of two New York Times bestsellers, Effortless and Essentialism. And I'm here with you on this journey to learn how to live a life that really matters. Have you ever felt like it's too late for you? Have you ever felt like life passed you by? That your dream is gone forever? That too many awful things have happened to you. You've made too many mistakes along the way. Well, today I have as my guest, the daughter of the late, great Stephen R. Covey. Her name is Cynthia Covey Haller, and she has spent 10 plus years completing a book for you. She started it with her father. It was his last big idea. Today, we will share this new habit of highly effective people with you, along with actionable advice for putting it into practice. By the end of this episode, you will have learned or relearned about the greatest power that is in you, a power that will help you hope again. Let's begin. Remember to teach the ideas in this podcast episode to someone else within 24 to 48 hours of listening so they can hope again. This episode is sponsored by Shopify, selling a little or a lot. (coughs) Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash greg, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash greg now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash greg.
1: Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and 6-1 since that matters and What do I even say other than, hey? (sighs) Well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now.
0: Cynthia, welcome to the podcast.
2: Thank you so much, Greg, for having me. I'm excited to be on your program, and I've listened to a lot of your different guests, and I'm honored to be a part of it.
0: Well, I'm the one that's honored because this interview has been a a long time coming because not not only have we been talking about it for a while, while you were still finishing up this marvelous new book, uh, but also, uh, I mean, I heard about this book years and years ago when your father and you were first working on it. Can you tell us just to begin with, what is this book? What's it about?
2: I'd love to. Thank you. It's got a long title. And my father said, you fight to keep this title. It's important. (laughs) Live Life at Crescendo. Your most important work is always ahead of you. And so the whole idea really came about, I think, because my dad started to see his mortality a little bit. Mm. (laughs) And people would say to him, gosh, Steve, you're, you know, you're 65 now. You know, you think you're going to keep speaking? Are you going to keep going so hard? And are you ready to settle down? Or, you know, what's going on? What do you see for the next few years? And he was dumbfounded at that because in our family, he didn't the the retirement word was like an the R word. It was, it was a curse word. You didn't say retirement. And so he thought, why would I, why would I step away? I feel like I've excited about my new material. I've got all these books still to come out that I'm working on. I have no reason to step aside. I still have passion for my work and and what I'm doing. I want to make a difference in people's lives and help bring out great potential in them. So why would I stop? And so he had a new mission statement, his personal mission statement, which was live life and crescendo. When he was 64, he and my, my mom built their dream home, at 64. Hmm. And it was a, a house that they wanted to be an intergenerational home where where cousins could come together and play and become good friends and a place together. But to um, my brother, David, he came up to the construction site and he was just incredulous that he would undertake such a task at seemingly you know, the end of his life <laughs> to him as a young 30-something-year-old, and my dad's building this dream house at 64. And so he stood at the construction site, uh, my brother did with his arms wide open, and yelled out to him at the sunset of his life, and yet he builds.
0: Dave. <laughs>
2: he builds at the sunset of his life and my dad of his life he builds. Yeah. He didn't look at it that way. He looked at that I have so many other things to do.
0: Yes, I, I love this idea that, that as people were saying to him, okay, well, what's your moving off the stage plan? That didn't even speak to him. It didn't name anything to him.
2: That's right. He wasn't interested in the least. And in fact, um, I asked him once, just to show how this came about a little bit, how I got involved. Mm. I said, "I said, Dad, are you ever going to write anything as as great and successful as The Seven Habits?" And he he reacted insulted. He, I didn't mean to offend him. He said, uh, "He said." He said, "Are you kidding? You think all I have is the 7 Habits? I've got so many other ideas in my in my head right now. Why do I get up every morning if I don't have a reason to write and to think of new ideas and to inspire? I'm not one and done. Give me a chance. I still have a lot more up there." <laughs> one of those ideas was this book, Live Life for Crescendo, and he did at this, you know, in his mid 60s, kind of toward his later 60s, he had you know, seven or eight different projects going at the same time. And I acted excited about the material. And so we decided to do it together. He said, you take my ideas and interview me and and go with this uh, mission statement, live life from crescendo, then write up all the examples and stories. Let's make it a practical book that people could read and see themselves in it, see themselves following this path and this paradigm.
0: Mm. And, and then how often did you... Uh, meet together to interview him and to develop this material?
2: Well, as you said, Greg, this was years ago. This was 2008 when it first came about. And so um, I met with him for the next two to three years. Um, I I still had little kids at home and I couldn't write and do as much as I wanted and other responsibilities. And he kept bugging me to to get it out and to work on it. And I, I did as much as I could. But he later... Uh, had an accident and, and was was ill and passed away unexpectedly, and so I regret that I didn't have it finished. But his assignment was uh, for me to be a, tr- a faithful translator of his idea, and we, as a family, realized this was really his last big idea and maybe kind of his last lecture um, that he was that he was giving and he felt as passionately about this material as he did the seven habits or anything that that people would say was was very successful he was he was turned on by this and really wanted to get it out and the reason was because of the subtitle which connects with the main title your most important work is always ahead of you and he uh, met so many people that were stuck in a midlife struggle maybe they had a divorce Maybe um, they had, were in a job that they hated and a career that they felt unappreciated or dead end, or maybe they were really successful. They'd made a lot of money and they'd um, kind of conquered everything in, in their career. So what's next? What were they going to do next? What were their choices? Um, it, maybe someone had a life-changing experience. They, they got cancer or someone died in their family or they lost their job or something. They had a real setback. How are they going to respond? And then the last part is what got him into this is the second half of life. What do you do when you start getting older? Do you retire? Do you keep working? And he thought that was a false dichotomy. He thought the third alternative between retire and keep working is make a contribution. And he decided in this book that the main idea was that at any stage and age of your life that you should continually be making contributions. And like the musical symbol, crescendo shows that it goes out, it spreads, it goes wider, becomes more powerful, more energy and power, where the opposite symbol, diminuendo, means it eventually slows down and doesn't have much volume and eventually comes to an end.
0: There's something so meta in what you're talking about, because here we have this principle Live Life in Crescendo, and 10 years after your father has passed away, this book is coming posthumously out into the world. Yeah, I mean, th- that is a manifestation, a literal manifestation of the very principle and title and idea of the book is that he's not physically here, but the ideas live on. The ideas are coming forward. Your thoughts?
2: You're right. He's not here, but his legacy and his ideas and things that he taught and believed in is still growing, is still still, um, coming out. And this is just beginning. So I had to live in crescendo just to finish the book myself. (laughs) It's taken 10 years because of all the things that I've had going in my life with with a lot of kids and grandkids and responsibilities. And um, I, I'm a first time author at 65. (laughs) I'm just, I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm living in crescendo following his example to get this out because I could feel him breathing down my neck for years. (laughs) It's like, when are you going to finish this? When are you going to have, have time to get this done? And, and I wanted to get it right for him. And I, I feel a, a great stewardship and a closeness to him that is, that I've I felt uh, working with him, even though he's not here to finish his his great work at the end of his life.
0: Now you say that you feel very close to him, and I think that deserves sort of a double click here for a second, because as you're reflecting, even at his funeral, if I remember right, each of his children, your parents' children, you know, your siblings, got to share one story about the connection and relationship that you felt with him uh do you want to share that story with us
2: sure i you know i think this story also um you right after he passed away greg you're the one that called me and asked me about this story and it's in essentialism and i loved it there and i knew i was going to use it in my book but i felt that it needed to be in yours as well i was i was honored that you had it That was basically an example of my father practicing first things first, even though my parents, um, they weren't perfect people, but they both tried hard to live what they believed and what they tried to teach us. And when mistakes were made, they would apologize to us. They were humble and would say, we're first time parents. We're trying to get this straight too, but we care and we're going to make things right. And I appreciated that. And so this example took place when I was 12. My father, sometimes when he would travel, would take one of us on a date uh, with him, a special uh, trip that we looked forward to. And I was the first one to go because I'm the oldest of nine. And I was 12 years old. And part of the fun was planning it and talking about it for mm-hmm. two or three months before we went. Mm-hmm. We had every detail down. He would speak at this conference. I would play around at this wonderful, luxurious hotel, swimming, shopping, doing things on my own. Then I would meet him at the very end um, of his presentation. And before a lot of people could talk to him, we would try to escape. And we had, had plans to go on the trolley cars I'd heard um, as a little girl about these magical trolley cars that went all over the city. So we were going to ride those, and we are were go- we're going to go shopping for school clothes in these fancy stores. And then we were going to go to Chinatown and have uh, Chinese food, which was we both loved. Then we would race back, take a taxi back to the hotel, and go swimming before they closed it. And even if it was closed, my dad was good at sneaking in and getting the last <laughs> few laps before we got kicked out. <laughs> We'd go underwater and try to th- try to not uh, pay any attention to the guy yelling at us above, <laughs> and then we would have a hot fudge sundae from room service. That would seem so cool to have room service in a hotel, and right, and then and then watch the late show. And we had every minute planned, so we were. I waited impatiently at the back of the room, and he finished, and he was making his way to me, and all of a sudden, one of his good college friends uh stepped like right in front of me <laughs> and hugged him and said oh Steve we haven't seen each other for 10 years i'm so glad to see you i came to the conference knowing you were here why don't we go da- why don't we uh, go out to dinner and uh, tonight with with uh, my wife and we could catch up and he was friendly and hugged him and said how happy he was to see him and said i invited my daughter on this special trip and he looked at me and said oh you can come too that's fine we'll go down the wharf and have some seafood well, I hated seafood. We wanted mm-hmm. Chinese food, and so I just—I could see my trolley car going down the tracks without me, without us and our special date. But mm-hmm. I thought he'd probably rather be with this great friend that they've loved each other for years than a twelve-year-old all night. So I felt kind of betrayed, but um, resigned to my fate. And then I heard my father um, put his arm on his shoulder and say, "Bob, I'm so glad to see you. I'd love to do that, but not tonight." Cynthia and I have a special date planned, don't we, honey? And he winked at me and grabbed my hand, and we were out the door before Bob knew what hit him. (laughs) And outside, I was kind of choked up and and said, gosh, Dad, are are you sure? Wouldn't you rather be with your friend? Um, Anyway, you haven't seen him for so long. And he said, are you kidding? I wouldn't miss this trip for anything with you, this date tonight. And you'd rather have Chinese food anyway, wouldn't you? Let's go catch that trolley car. And so this this seemingly small experience in my childhood represented to me a lot of things. Him putting me first, first things first. And I was the most important thing to him right then. I was essential to to take something from your book and also that um, our relationship, how, how that it would grow from that and how trusted I felt with him. And all of my siblings can point to a similar San Francisco type story in their own lives where he, he showed that, um, as it says in, in this Crescendo book, people are more important than things. And life is about contribution, not accumulation. So that was a special memory for me.
0: It's beautiful to have heard that story when you shared it with me years ago now. I mean, really almost 10 years ago, right after your father had passed away. And I remember you getting choked up even at that time, reflecting on how that moment, that trade-off, had now lasted a lifetime. And it's profound for me, again in this moment, to think about how that moment now lives into a new level because you have now written this book, been this faithful translator, continued to to invest in that relationship even in this unusual way
2: right that's true it it kind of served as a a foundation for our lives he'd built it up before that but as he wrote in some of his other books relation in relationships the small things are the big things Mm. and i was glad i've become closer to him through writing this i don't know just filling his uh spirit with me and filling um the things that he felt were important to put in this and It's been a joint project, even though he hasn't been here. I've taken the notes and from interviews and from other teachings and writings, but I felt like I kind of had his principles in my mind as well that came to me while I was writing, and that it was a joint co-authorship of this book. Yeah. And it was a great experience.
0: I believe what you just said. I can just imagine that process of really... I mean, I think that anytime you're reading, you're thinking with another person's mind. Yeah. And in this case, you're writing this together, even in this unusual way. So you are still thinking with his mind in mind as you're doing it, this this co-creation.
2: That's exactly what happened, because I chose to write this book in his voice. I toyed with how to do it, if we should have kind of Stephen says, Cynthia says, I never really liked those the way that, that, you know, some people would do that. I didn't like that. It felt too um, splintered and we, I wanted to write as one, but these are his ideas and his um, paradigm, which we call the crescendo merit paradigm, which is like a pair of glasses that you put on. It's the way that you view and see everything else. And this crescendo mentality Of looking at life, that um, through that lens of you know, I've had this hard setback. I found out I have this disease. Um, How am I going to deal with that? Am I going to um, give up, give in, and shut down? I have an example of Michael J. Fox in this book, who found out when he was his height of his career in his low thirties that he had Parkinson's, and he was devastated. And he admitted he drank a lot and tried to be in denial and tried to ignore it. He didn't know how to deal with it. And then he realized, I have a lot of choices still. The only choice that I don't have is that I I can't choose if I have Parkinson's or not.
1: But Mm -hmm. everything
2: else is up to me. And so from that point, um, he and his wife, Tracy Pollen, who I admire as well, they have lived in crescendo. He has become the face of Parkinson's. And has voiced for so many brought brought this terrible disease to the forefront, went into Congress without taking his medicine, uh, so that they could see what the tremors were like and how if they cut off funding for those, for the medicine with people with Parkinson's, what it would be like the reality of it, and he was you know gutsy enough to do that and shaking and and slurring and and not speaking well in front of the committee so that they could see the reality and then he has spent his life um he still has done acting where he could he's um but he's he's mostly this people say this is his greatest role that he's played he still had more important work ahead of him than being a superstar actor he still had more important work and this was it although you know he maybe he wouldn't have chosen this but he he said how much he learned from it and how many other books he wrote about optimism and about how to handle setbacks and during the pandemic he wrote another book he can't uh, really speak anymore he has has to have someone translate it and is struggling more but he has raised 1 billion dollars and you imagine that a billion dollars for this foundation wow and is is still he says he's still an optimist and still grateful for what he has This is the idea of living in crescendo when you have a setback, when you are stuck in a rut, in a dead-end job, when you have no relationship with your children or your wife and maybe you're divorced or contemplating divorce. You kind of have to step back and get hold of yourself and identify, am I going to choose to live in crescendo and keep fighting this, keep working, keep doing what I can, to improve my situation, that I can consciously choose to do that, or am I going to give into it and give into defeat and have my life basically come to an end?
0: The first thing I want to say about this story back with your father, I don't want to miss this, because as you were talking, I realized that it's because of that example, that story, that I decided To travel with my children. So I travel (laughs) about 80% of the time, I'll take one of my children with me.
2: That's wonderful.
0: As we go. And it was as an intention, my intention was to be able to create that kind of memory, that kind of sequence where you look forward to it and you're going to have an adventure and you make that time. And that has been materially important for our family culture uh, for my relationship with my children. And, you know, I didn't want to miss this moment to, to make that connection. That's the that, first thing.
2: That's wonderful to hear.
0: Now, to these stories you've just shared uh, with Michael J. Fox, I mean, that is an astounding story. Uh, yeah. we, we, we know some of that story, but to hear it just laid out in the way that you have illustrates so clearly this idea of something happens to you and, Through this crescendo paradigm, you basically shift it from something has happened to you to something that is happening for you. Right. And as you then say, this can be the driver, the initiation of a whole new level of contribution that I otherwise wouldn't have made. You know that that choice really exists for people. That's profound. My best friend Sam talk has terminal cancer. Here he is, the most amazing person. To say he's been a friend to me and doesn't even scratch the surface of of what that relationship has been and is now. I just spent. Uh, Some time with him just over the summer uh, in person, traveling together, making memories, our family, his family. And it was full of laughter, full of joy, and also fully aware that this isn't what he chose. This isn't what I would choose for him, for his marvelous wife, Anna, and uh, five children. Uh, I I wouldn't choose any of this. He wouldn't choose any of this. Right. Nevertheless... And he does talk about this. Now, this is to me, a very profound discovery related to the subject at hand. What I have learned from him is that if you choose to live life in crescendo in terms of constantly serving, he is he is still serving in his community. He is still serving his children. He is writing letters to his children at various ages in the future in case he's not there to do it. I mean, that that's powerful, but there is a cost, a secret cost. And that is that it actually in some ways makes life more painful because he has more to lose than if he just gives up and just says, okay, well, what's the point? My relationship with my wife is now terrible. My relationship with my children is awful. My quality of life is, is the worst. Like in a sense, there's, more joy, but more pain in this crescendo orientation. That's what I've observed. And, and that, that has surprised me in a way, uh, but, but I wonder what your thoughts are about that.
2: Well, your friend sounds amazing how he's still serving and doing that. And I see what you're saying that it is more painful because he knows what he's going to lose and he's such a wonderful person. What a legacy he's he's leaving for his family. How would his family like to think of him and see him the last six months to a year of his life? Would they like to see him in a bed, depressed, you know, discouraged, you know, resigned to his fate, or how he has chosen to live? Um, even though more painful, it's more. You're right; it is more courageous to embrace life even more fully and to care about the relationships that are most important to you, because you are going to, you ultimately, will lose them but what a what a way to to end your your life and what a legacy just like my father is is gone but his legacy lives on his legacy is living on right now he's still here but you're speaking about him you're impressed by his spirit and his family will be too it will give them a lot of courage and strength when they too face setbacks and think how would dad respond would he give into this or would he fight or would he would he just try to as Thoreau says, suck the marrow out of life as long as he can. And I think he's making the right choice, though it is a courageous choice.
0: To live life in crescendo, it's courage. That's it what is. it is. Tell me this. What are your primary takeaways from more than a decade of living in, you know, in your father's mind, but also in your own mind and your own insights? What are the key takeaways? for the rest of us.
2: Well, there are so many great inspiring thoughts I've had while working on this book that he gave to me and that are uniquely his. And I like I say, I'm I'm grateful to be a part of it. And I could I could fill him near with me many times when I was writing things and and even sometimes I'd put it aside and then come back and write the same thing and check it against what I'd written before and realized, you know, I wrote it again when I didn't realize (laughs) a a month later. So I knew I, I was getting it right. But one that we've talked about is that you can consciously choose, no matter what happens to your circumstances, you can choose your path to live in crescendo or to live in dominiondo. And it's a conscious choice and it does take courage. And I appreciate you bringing that out. I hadn't thought about that as much, that it's not the easy choice. It's more the courageous, the harder choice. Is the road less taken, but in the in the long run, I think it's a blessing to the person that that chooses to live in Crescendo as well as those that are inspired by it. But so I would think the first one would be choose to consciously live your life in Crescendo and courageously act upon it. And secondly, I think my father and I wanted to instill hope in our listeners that regardless of circumstances and what has happened, your most important work or your most important contribution your most important things that you're about are, are always, and I and I put always in italics in the front of the book, are always ahead of you if you so choose. Um, you have great things ahead. They may be different than what you've done in the past. Maybe it won't be as successful as what you did in the past, but it's still important because it's what you're about now. And third is to hope to inspire listeners to really believe that life is about contribution, not accumulation. There are many needs around us. President Carter says this in a in a quote I have in the book, that look around and see so many needs. And despite what you're doing in your life, you'd better get on with it. And so take action. Life is a mission, not a career. That's a big um, takeaway in my father's book, that um, we all have jobs and careers, but that's not... That's not what life's totally about. Life is about what finding your own unique mission and purpose. Everybody has one. Everyone has something that they should do on this earth, and we can find it through listening to our conscience, through looking around us and responding to needs, even in our own families that may be struggling and suffering. And that he always taught, too, that we don't invent our missions. We detect them we detect them through our own research through through our struggles and then we could find what you feel like your mission is about and i feel like you you've kind of done that with your two great books that have come out that have helped people prioritize and care about what's essential and effortless to do things that are hard to make it to make it more effortless to do to do maybe the easier things that can help you get through the hard parts in your life, the things that are right in front of you that are that are more effortless, and now you're going into a new. You know, you're you're getting more knowledge and, and learning more with um, more training and education, and and that that's a mission that you must feel strong about, and I feel strong about this mission that I've have felt for the last since 2008. This has been my purpose and my mission to get this book out. It was a daunting task because. I don't have a a big name. My my father does, and I was hoping that that people would um, be interested in his last big idea. But we had to find a publisher, and there's so many great books out there, and it was a scary thing. I had to be courageous to keep living in crescendo and believe that I could bring this about. And so, I I think the main thing I challenge the readers to do is just to begin. Look around you and see needs in your family, in your community. See needs and match it with your own talents and your what you feel you're called to do, your mission. And just start something small. Just begin by visiting your lonely neighbor down the street that has an awful yard. And maybe you spend a couple hours with your kids and clean it up and uh, take them a loaf of bread and, and talk to them. Spend an hour with them. What a great thing to, to, to do to uh, lighten someone's life. And then maybe in your circle of influence, you see another need in your schools, and maybe you volunteer to, in an overcrowded classroom, or you start uh, collecting, you do your own food drive, you're like people did during the pandemic. They did it right out of their own garages, and they just felt prompted to do something, and they acted. And so I would say, follow, follow your heart and do what you can. President Roosevelt said, do what you can with what you have where you are. And that said very succinctly, and I believe that. And I hope that this um, crescendo mentality will uh, inspire and bless others to uh, look around them and to, and to serve. And in the process of making other people's life better, they'll all, it'll also greatly enrich your own.
0: Uh, it's it's a, such a beautiful sentiment, and this idea of letting the needs that you see be the trigger for living life in crescendo that 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 no matter what our circumstances are the moment that we see the need of another and are drawn towards it we start to make a contribution right i remember when my grandmother passed away and i went and stayed with my unbelievably terrific grandfather uh, i stayed with him for a few days right at that pivotal transition in his life and i saw firsthand this ninety-something man think about other people, serve to his neighbors. He was in a different home than he'd spent the last fifty years of his life, so that was disruptive. And yet, he told me about this person down the hall who he now has lunch with, and and this person over here who they, you know, they talk faith together with, and. And it was still in that mode. And, and as you've already said before, right, this is just one more meta moment of this conversation, that that contribution he made there can't be measured just by the impact he had on those people around him on, in those few days. Right. That contribution also finds its way into me and into that example in my life that sort of thunders down to me from him, and also into this conversation now into a large audience of people everywhere who are hearing that story. So this idea that just simply seeing a need and responding to it, regardless of what's happened in the past, regardless of the challenges that you're facing, that that will open up opportunities to make a greater contribution. I think, under all circumstances, is a profound place uh, to, to, to wrap our conversation.
2: I, I love that. Make a contribution in any way you can. A lot of times, we ignore our own family needs. Maybe, maybe there's a one of our our kids is going through a divorce, or maybe they are really struggling being a new time parent, or maybe they're a student or Whatever, reaching out to our own our own family, and then and then looking around the neighborhood, and I mean it, everybody can do different things. That's the exciting thing that each contribution is important. Some will make huge ones. Some that have um, a lot of a lot of money can make a big splash and, and uh, can help so much with poverty. And if they choose to to do that after a pinnacle of success career, then what a great contribution! But it doesn't diminish the person that uh, shows up unannounced at the food bank to help sort food and that um, will visit someone that's lonely or that will clean up an area without any accolades and just, just make their street a little brighter. You know, so it's, it's exciting to think making a contribution can create a domino effect. Like you've said, how your grandfather did that in your life. It made a, an impression on you. Well, think what it meant to the, person that he was serving and a friend to, as well as giving him some sort of purpose and meaning. I mean, this your grandfather had a reason to get up in the morning in this place that he didn't want to be maybe and not familiar to him, but yet he had a friend that he wanted to comfort or he had something he was going to do that day that gave him purpose and meaning too. Pablo Picasso said, the meaning of life is to find your gift. The purpose of life is to give it away. And that's kind of uh, one of the mission statement for the book is find your meaning and purpose and then give it away, spread it. Enlarge your circle of influence.
0: Cynthia Covey-Haller, it has been a real pleasure having this opportunity to speak with you today on the podcast. Thank you for your contribution and for living your life in Crescendo, because if you hadn't, the book wouldn't be uh, <laughs> would come forth and we wouldn't be able to have this conversation. Yeah. Cynthia, Thank you. That's,
2: thank you so much. I really enjoyed talking and I learned so much from what you said. So, thank you for having me be a guest on your show, Greg. I appreciate it.
0: Thank you. Let's come back to the questions from the beginning. Have you ever felt like it's too late for you? Have you ever felt that life passed you by, that your dream is gone forever? Too many awful things have happened to you. You've made too many mistakes along the way. I hope this episode has helped you learn or relearn about this great power that is in you, that it will help you to hope again because your most important work is always ahead of you and you can live your life in crescendo. If you have found value in this episode, please write a review on Apple Podcasts. The first five people to write a review of this episode will receive year-long access to the Essentialism Academy. Just send a photo of your review to info at com. Also do yourself a favor and subscribe to the podcast so that you can receive these episodes on Tuesdays and Thursdays effortlessly. The book, Effortless, and essentialism together are designed as a formula to be able to help you to not only know that your most important work is always ahead of you, but to be able to do that most important work that is always ahead of you. We'll continue the conversation next time.